This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Green and Gold History. Now time for another edition of Green and Gold History on A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. And I'm with my man Ray Fossey as we're going to go over the evolution of catching, something I think you know a little bit about. (laughs) Well, let's start. If you ever collected baseball cards, and I remember seeing catchers way back when, and there used to be a chest protector that extended down in between the legs and catchers would kind of stand up a little bit, you know, instead of squatting down, giving a low target, because maybe there wasn't as much protection then as there is now. But it, it evolved over, and, and I'll be honest with you, Tony, whenever I first started catching, I had Del Rice as my hitting, uh, catching coach in Cleveland. He was a great catcher. I collected his baseball cards. I, I collected cards. So all these guys that, you know, I'm talking to, uh, I collected their baseball cards, so I knew who they were. But when Del Rice told me in Cleveland, He said, we want you to catch, and that means block balls in the dirt, throw out base runners, handle the pitching staff, and whatever you do offensively is a bonus. Now, you fast forward, that's not the case anymore. But at the time when I first came up, catching was catching, handling the pitching staff. That was before scattering ports. And I caught Sam McDowell uh, a year in Cleveland, the only time he won 20 games. And he should have won 20 every year with the stuff he had. But what happens as a catcher, you feel your responsibility is to be that pitcher's friend, that pitcher's helper, help him get through a game, realize what's working, what's not working. Uh, Know him personally to the point of, when you come in the ball game, I know your arm angle, I know everything about you, that if I see something out of the ordinary, I'm gonna walk out the mound and tell you. And to me, that was the most important thing because, Tony, I would rather tell my pitcher suggest to him your arms angles different something's wrong instead of sitting back there and waiting to get in the dugout and say oh by the way your arm angle he gave up a home run and we lost a game so that's the importance of a catcher knowing every pitcher whether it be a starter or a reliever know his tendencies know how he performs the best and basically know what he can do to get hitters out i think of the great hall of famer jim catfish hunter when i was traded to oakland i said to him Catfish, why don't you ever shake me off? Because you see pitchers shaking their head on a different side. And he simply told me, you're behind the plate every game. You know these hitters better than I do. I want you to tell me what to throw and where to throw it, and that's what I'm going to do. So when I see pitchers shaking their heads, I'm going, what are you doing? Because you're in the bullpen, and you can't see what's going on. The catcher's back there. He can watch the feed. He can see different things that are going on that you can't see in the bullpen or even as a starter because he's back there now in a five-man rotation this was a four-man rotation but it says a lot about the work that a catcher has to do to get prepared to play the game there's so many scouting reports now that really has added to what a catcher should do 
Uh, I liked what Jonathan Lucroy did because he had a binder, even in today's day, of of, uh, of catchers and having all the information available via the scouts. Wait, what? A, bi- a binder with, like, paper? What, what is oh, that, yeah, Foss? No, it, it was a full <laughs> binder, and Jonathan Lucroy could tell you every hitter that came to the plate and what that hitter did against a certain pitcher. Yeah, that's old school in today's world. And yeah, that's a binder with paper and it's not a text machine or, or an email <laughs> doing that. But, but you know, and, and that's why it's the work that a catcher has to put in to be able to do that. But, you know, even from catching the baseball, I'm old school and, and I, I'm proud of it because I learned how to catch with the palm up of a catcher's mitt. You see a lot of catchers now and they say that you can catch the ball and then, like you're going down with it, and then it comes up. You bring the glove up. They talk about framing. Well, if you catch the ball properly, you don't have to credit someone for framing a baseball because he catches it correctly, then it's going to be a strike. You don't have to take a pitch that's six inches outside and bring it back in like some catchers do. And there are a lot of them that do that because they feel that's maybe part of framing to get the ball back in the strike zone. But the whole idea is to take a ball that is in the strike zone or at least close to the strike zone and keeping it there. That's how you frame, by keeping a strike in the strike zone. I've seen too many catchers that take balls out of the strike zone. I think of one catcher in Boston when Jason Kindle was catching that he caught everything with the palm down. That's okay, except if you have a sinker ball pitcher because as the pitcher throws the ball and your glove, your catcher's mitt is palm down going after the ball, the ball keeps sinking. You can't get to it quickly enough. But yet if you turn your glove around, palm up, then you get under the baseball, and especially the sinker ball pitcher, you get under the ball and you keep it from going to the backstop, either as a wild pitch or a pass ball. But there's so many techniques in catching that have changed over the course of years that I know that there are some catching coaches. Brent Main, when he caught for the A's, his father taught catching completely different than what we were all taught. He was taught, catch the ball, palm down. And I'm looking at these guys going, what is going on? I said, this is being taught. I was told it's being taught. So it has evolved over the years, but touted to me the main thing, catcher, catch the ball, and help your pitching staff prevent runs from scoring. You as a catcher can do that more than anybody because you have the knowledge of what your pitcher can do, his strengths, blocking balls, keeping the ball in play, and that's why in my scorebook I have catcher's blocks. I don't think anybody else does because <laughs> I appreciate why well, I appreciate the importance of a catcher blocking a ball because if there's a runner at first and there's a wild pitch and the guy gets to second, he's now in score position. So if a catcher blocks a ball that's in the dirt and he gives himself up to block the ball and keeps a runner at first, that's worthy of a mark in my scorebook because I note that he blocked a ball with a runner at first and kept him out of score position. I also have catcher's blocks for home. That means if a runner's at third and a catcher blocks the ball to prevent the run from scoring, that's worthy of a mark. And when Stephen Vogt was here and Josh Fegley, these guys, I've seen a lot of, I use red for home and circle it, and then I'll circle where he blocked the ball. So I know in my scorebook that at the end of the game, you know, A's may win by one, catcher blocked two to keep them from scoring, they could have lost by one, but the catcher did his job. I think it's important that the catcher be recognized for what he does behind the plate. And it's not offense, it's what he does defensively. That, to me, is a catcher. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't have catcher's blocks in my book, but I may add it. Uh, looking at the history of catching, 
So when we look back at like baseball really starting around 1850s, reading up on this, getting ready for this, knowing that we were going to do the evolution of catching, originally pitchers were like softball pitchers. They were just... They were just there to initiate contact to put the ball in play. Now, some of my old pitching coaches may say I was that kind of guy, too. But it wasn't until as we started to get into the 1860s and the 1870s that pitchers started throwing overhand. They weren't underhanding right. anymore, right? right? And then they started inventing pitches like the curveball, the spitball, the knuckleball. And then reading up on this, Ray, it really happened in 1877 where catchers were like, Wait a minute, I'm starting to get drilled because because of the curveball and because there was different pitches, they had to move closer to the plate. Yeah. And that's when they realized, <laughs> I need a mask, I need some protection. Yeah. So it really was in the 1800s where catchers really understood that they needed gear. And there's so much gear now. And, and one, of, one of the things, I used a soft cap. Now, helmets are used. They're hockey-style masks. Um, the one thing that I never had, which I look at catchers now, the extension over the knee. You think, Tony, that if you get down and do a squat, the one part when your knee is above the knee, that muscle, you hit a get a ball hit or get hit there, you can't squat. Now there's protection that goes over the knees, so if you get a foul ball, it hits the shin guard that's extended over. It also extends over the foot. I've thought for many years that catchers should wear steel-toed shoes simply because of foul balls hit your feet before we had the extension of the shin guards. They hit your feet, your feet would, I mean, they'd hurt as much as anything with foul balls off of a bat to the catcher. But now, I mean, you see the shin guards, you see the, the chest protectors, the mask. Someone said the other day, why did the catcher get hit in his thigh? It's because when he caught the baseball, he went down to one knee or as the ball was coming, he went down to one knee and he exposed the thigh. The next pitch, he was up in the proper position. I said, that's what you're supposed to do because the shin guards protect your lower part, the chest protect your, your middle part, and the helmet and the mask, your head. But when you drop to a knee and the ball is coming and they foul it off, there's no protection on your thigh because you don't wear a shin guard all the way up to your midsection. It's just over your knees and your shins, and that's why your thigh is exposed. Well. You wear the equipment to protect your body. And if you get out of your catching mechanics and go to a knee to try to give a lower target, you're exposing body or body parts that should not be exposed if you're catching properly. But the, the interesting thing about the equipment is that that's what I saw about the, the chest protector that extended. You know, and, and people always talk about a protective cup. I mean, it's basically from a male standpoint, it's a protection because Stephen Volt got hit a couple of years oh. ago. It's the worst I've ever seen. And he had protection. I I jokingly said I didn't watch the game of the week without mine just because, <laughs> you know, you know, you, you just get concerned. And, and all it takes is to get hit once and you will always wear it when um, and I can't remember. They call it Mr. Involvement. Um, Vernon Glenn. He came out to catch Tom Candy out his knuckleball. This one, he put on the gear, and I said, you have a cup on? He goes, what's that? I said, get upstairs and ask somebody about a cup. I said, if you're gonna catch a knuckleball, you better get protection in areas that will really hurt if you get hit. And he came back and he said, thank you. <laughs> and I said, I know, thank you. Because, you know, and, and I know when, when you know, I first started catching and you, you'd put on the protection, you go, oh, everybody's gonna be looking at me. But then you realize it is protection for a reason 
Because when you're back there, see, the great thing about catching, you're involved in every play. And I played in the outfield and I played infield occasionally. It was so boring because when you're calling a pitch, you're calling the game, the pitch is thrown to you. Nothing happens in baseball until the pitcher releases the baseball and is thrown to the hitter and the catcher ultimately. So everything is involved as a catcher. You're there. You're in the middle of the action on every play. The catching position, Tommy, catching position is the only position on the field where every position player can stand and look straight out. Catcher is the only one who can see everybody. No other position can do that. And people say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you think about being in center field. You can't see the right or left fielder. You can see everybody else. But as a catcher, you can see everybody. And that's why the catcher is the quarterback. Catcher is in charge and running the game, basically. But from the equipment standpoint, the greatest thing about the job of catching is that over time it has evolved into the more protection you can get for a catcher, the better it's going to be for him. But when Stephen Vogt got hit, even with the protection, it was the worst I've ever seen. And I've been hit many times, and whether it be in the head or areas of, of protection that uh, can go unnamed on this family show, but you get hit once, you'll make sure that you do everything you can in the future to protect. And speaking of the history of the cup, I remember going through, it was like the last part of my, my grandfather's gear when he played in Major League Baseball. They were steel. The mm-hmm. cups were steel. That's a whole different ball game. When I think about gear, and I think about gear for the catcher, and I think about the old gear for the umpires in the American League, it really dic- it really dictated the strike zone, all the gear that was being used behind the plate. That's a great point, Tony. I'm glad you brought that up because in the American League, they had the balloon chest protector. A balloon, basically, it was it was the protection. That it had uh, enough for your neck to go uh, into, and the umpire held the chest protector behind the protection. In other words, his arms were here. The whole part of his front of his body was protected by this big, huge balloon, and they stood straight up. So in the American League, the umpires were known as highball umpires because they stood back, they were straight up, and they couldn't see the low pitch, so they called everything up high. Get in the National League, and, and I experienced it in the National League in the World Series, and I remember an umpire, there was a runner second, and... I came up to throw and I hit the umpire because he was hovering over my left shoulder. And I didn't know it because I'd been in the American League. So I get in the National League and it's the way all umpires are now. They're in the slot as Eddie Montague says, it's called the slot where they're on the left shoulder of, a, of, a, of the catcher when there's a right-handed pitcher and vice versa lefty. But I, all of a sudden I come up and the umpire says, I'm sorry, man, I should have told you. And I said, well, being in the American League and that guy's three feet behind me, I never had to worry about that. And he says, I know. But see, I think that's why the consistency now in both leagues. Of course, mm-hmm. the umpires now, but everybody's the same. They have the inside protector, chest protector, shin guards, everything, and they get down in that slot and they can see basically everything that's going on. Whereas the, the hard part about the, the, in, the World Series was in the American League, you had the high strike and you get the National League playing in those games, it's a low strike. And it was totally different from the two aspects. And that was before interleague play. But probably the best thing that happened was that all the umpires became under the same umbrella and they all did the same. And when I think about Johnny Bench, it said that Johnny Bench was the first guy to take his hand and put it behind his back. You're starting to shake your head. He was not the first guy then. Randy Hundley, catching for the Chicago Cubs, was told by his father, if you want to catch every day, 
than you catch one-handed with a hinged glove. See, I came up with the pancake. Basically, it looked like a pancake with a hole in the middle, and you had to use two hands. Art Kushner, when he was with the A's and the White Sox, he had the old-style catcher's mitt, and basically it was maybe 12 inches circular, and right in the middle was this hole. So the ball would come up there, but you would have to hold the catcher's mitt, and then you had your bare hand, your throwing hand, in there. So you had to literally put your hand over the ball, otherwise it's going to fall out. So the one-handed style catching evolved when Randy Hunley, father told him that. So it was protecting the throwing hand behind your back. But the misconception there, Tony, is that you only do it when there's less than two strikes and nobody on base. If there's somebody on base or two strikes on a hitter, you have to have the bare hand someplace around. You can protect it. I always put it behind my catcher's mitt. I have broken my finger three times. <laughs> you know, I used the old-style catcher's mitt, and the ball would come in, and you try to do it. Because you could imagine as the ball's being thrown, you could have your fist or your, your right hand, your throwing hand, position. You always put your thumb in between and loosely wrap your four fingers over the thumb. So if you happen to get hit, it kind of goes off instead of coming directly on. But whenever the runner is at first base and the ball is coming, you put your hand out and all it takes is to go a different direction. Instead of the ball being fouled, instead of going to catcher's mitt, it goes off that finger. It did mine three years in a row and I had surgery. And the late Jim Hegan, great story. He caught exclusively with the no-break mitt. He never broke a finger. He broke a finger when he was coaching for the New York Yankees, hitting fungos. Somebody threw a ball, he grabbed it, and he hit a finger and broke it. <laughs> so you can catch all these great Hall of Fame pitchers and never break a finger, but that can happen. But the one-headed style catching mitt really turned out to be a savior for fingers being broken, basically. And I've seen some ugly ones. One of the worst, Tony, is that you take the index and the middle finger. Now, granted, I had mine hit off the end but I've seen some where the ball would actually go through between the two fingers and just split right up the hand. I mean, the ugliest thing you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it's gruesome. So with the one-handed style mitt, but now let's not forget that you can't get lazy with the one-handed style catcher's mitt. And now they have two breaks in some catcher's mitt. I use the one with a single break, which you know you could catch and hold with one hand. And that means you could put your bare hand behind you if there's nobody on base or less than two strikes. But you think about throwing out base runners. If a catcher has his hand behind his back with a runner on base, everything is microseconds. You know, the time that a pitcher throws the ball to the hitter and he has less than a second to determine what he's gonna do. Picture's the same thing with a runner at first base. If your hand is behind your back, as the runner takes off, by the time you bring your hand back to your catcher's mitt, to transfer the ball out of your glove into your hand, that's just enough time usually for the runner to steal second. So that's why you have to have your hand close to your catcher's mitt. That's why as a pitch is delivered, you see the runner going, you start to position yourself as a catcher to get your body moving to catch the ball, turn and throw, and hopefully make the accurate throw. But if that hand is not close enough to the catcher's mitt to make the transfer, that extra time is going to be just enough for you not to be able to throw out the base runner. Something that every catcher has had to d do throughout time is you have to know your staff. Mm -hmm. How tough is it to know? You got to know how the guy reacts with pressure. You yeah. got to know what the guy throws. You got to know which pitch is actually a good pitch for him. You need to know the hitter. There's yeah. so many scenarios and so many things you have to know as a catcher. How tough is that? 
It's hard, but it takes work, and it's work that you have to do as a catcher. You have to know everybody. Um, when you have a starting pitcher, everybody's different. It's just like we all have different fingerprints. You know, God made us all different. And as a pitcher, it's the same. You have a lefty, you have a righty, you have a sinker ball pitcher, you have a, a four-seam fastball type pitcher. But the one thing I always looked at is the arm angle. When a pitcher gets tired, inevitably he'll drop his arm, his elbow goes down, and he starts pushing the ball. The idea is that the elbow stays up, the pitcher's on top, and he drives through the plate and the hitter. But you have to notice that, and it will help you notice that your pitcher's getting tired if he's dropping his elbow. There are times that I would be behind the plate, and I would simply take my right arm, and I'd take my catcher's mitt and go to the elbow and push it up. That was kind of a sign to tell the pitcher, you're dropping your elbow, get your arm up and get on top because that allows you to throw down and through into the catcher's mitt and through the hitter. But if, if you don't know what your pitchers are capable of doing, one of the worst things is to go to the mound and scream at a guy because he's not doing something and he looks at you go, why are you screaming at me? You know, <laughs> but you have to know whether he can accept criticism, constructive criticism, because as a catcher, all you're trying to do is help him. You, 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 he's your teammate. You want him to do well because as a team, you're going to win if that pitcher performs the way he's capable. But that's a great point because when a guy comes out of the bullpen, you've caught him enough in the bullpen as a reliever. You've caught the starters. See, and I'm going to really talk about old school. You know, I never, ever warmed up a pitcher in the bullpen, the starting pitcher. Whereas now you see catchers who are starting the game, they're down the bullpen warming up the pitcher. I never did that because... I figured I could tell in eight pitches when he came out to the mound to warm up what he had. I'm not going to take my time down there and get all these extra squats and warm up a pitcher. I remember, I wanted, I think it was Bob Didier, Mel Didier's son, the late scout, Dodger scout for many years. Matter of fact, he was the one supposedly said when Dennis Eckersley's pitching and to Kirk Gibson, look for a slider back door. And that's when he hit the home run. That was Mel Didier. But his son, Bob, caught for the Atlanta Braves. And he was, I think, the first catcher that actually went to the bullpen. It, it, it might have been a knuckleball pitcher, and he wanted to catch him in the bullpen before he went out on the mound. But all of a sudden now, everybody's going. You see the starting catcher going down on the bullpen. Marcus Jensen does a good job. They'll work on catching. And then you look down, and there's your starting catcher for the game warming up the pitcher. That's taking a lot of wear and tear on your body, man, You know, to, to go down there and warm him up. But... Um, there are times that pitchers have been acquired by a team, and I walked them out. I was at Cleveland. The guy, is, I said, hi, I'm Ray. What's your name? Never <laughs> never know who he is, you know, because he's just coming to a ball game. Because, you know, those are the way trades sometimes happen. But, but um, you know, you can do that in spring training. You get a chance in spring training to warm up all your pitchers. You see the tendencies. You see when they're having success, and you see when they're struggling. And when the pitcher comes into a game, then you look for those checkpoints to see whether he's good or bad. And it brings me to the point also about spring training. My first camp that I went to spring training with the Cleveland Indians, I was number one draft choice. I'm saying, I'm good. You know, I don't have to. I went there. My legs were the weakest I've ever had them. And as a catcher in spring training, you're warming up pitchers. Your legs go fast. And by the time you get to swing the bat, I could not stand at home plate without my legs shaking because they were so weak from catching and warming up all the pitchers. From that point on, every offseason, first thing I worked on were my legs to make sure my legs were strong. So when I warmed up pitchers, that I got a chance. Because we all want to hit. And the worst thing is to get up there and your legs are, <laughs> are shaking because you've warmed up all these pitchers and they're not in shape. 
But that's part. Listen, if you could have strong legs and you have a strong arm, you're going to be a great catcher because you, that means you're going to work. Your legs are going to be strong. The foundation is always the greatest. You ask anybody about catching, get somebody, go to the outfield and throw long so that when you get behind the plate, you throw the first, second or third. It's a piece of cake. Because you've stretched it out in the outfield like outfielders do, like Ramon Laureano making those strong throws from the outfield. But he'd be the type of guy you'd say, hey, Ramon, let's go out and throw, play catch. So you, you throw the distances so that when you do throw to the bases, it's much shorter. But, Tony, catching is so much fun. I mean, it's hard work. But for kids, and when I was doing clinics with the A's, and I'd go out and we'd talk. And just kind of a group. And I'd, I'd say, you know, catchers are the smartest players on the field, the most intelligent players on the field. And they'd all look at me and I'd say, you think about it. you got to tell the pitcher what to do, what to throw, how many outs there are, move guys around. And, and I said, okay, now we're going to break up into infielders, outfielders, and pitchers and catchers. Everybody come to the catcher. And I go, what's going on? He said, well, you say we're the smartest, so that's why I'm a, <laughs> I must be a catcher because I'm the most intelligent on the field. But, you know, there's so many responsibilities for a catcher. And it, it, it's such a unique position. That if you think, and, you know, a lot of times you say, I don't want to be a catcher because it's too much work and have to block balls. And, you know, there was a, a ball that came out called the Incredible. It looked like a baseball, had the seams, but it's soft. So, you know, guys could pound like crazy and you could learn how the technique of blocking balls. And same with hitting, doing those things. But if you're a catcher and you're involved in every play, it is the greatest thing in the world. And have conversations with the hitters. Oh, that was the most fun. I remember Amos Otis, who, by the way, was in center field, made the throw to the plate in Cincinnati in the All-Star game. And I'd say, Amos, if you made a better throw, I wouldn't have gotten run over the way I did. But <laughs> but he, he, would co- he would come up to the plate, and I'd start humming a tune, and he'd go, you know what? That's a great song, but please shut up so I can concentrate <laughs> on hitting. One of the best was the late Thurman Munson. Thurman Munson was a chatterbox. And that's the beautiful thing about catching. And you could talk to hitters, hey, how you doing? You know, you're looking pretty good today, you know. And then you try to distract them as much as possible because that's helping your pitcher if you can distract the, the hitter. But Thurman Munson, if he was behind the plate, hey, Ray, how you doing? How's the family? Everybody doing good? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, Thurman. And, you know, meanwhile, you're trying to get set up, and he's talking, talking, talking. But when Thurman came up to hit, hey, Thurman, how you doing? He says, hey, I'm fine. Would you make him shut up? He's distracting <laughs> me. He, he would reverse it. He would never let me say anything to him. You know, but, but it's so much fun. Tony, one of the things about catching, stealing signs, borrowing signs, taking signs, as a catcher, you have to be very observant. And that's why it's important to be able to watch what's going on. You see a runner at second base, you can watch him. And if you're given signs and you're watching him, he may be the relaying signs to the hitter based on what you're giving. And that's why the technology in today's world, that's cheating. If you as a catcher are not changing and using the signs properly to where a runner at second base can relay those, then it's your fault as a catcher. When I was with Milwaukee, they would get a runner at second base and they'd get a sequence of signs. They'd come on the dugout and they'd say, okay, this is what I saw. The next guy gets the second base. He looks to see if the sequence of signs are the same. And then he'd just give a little sign saying, I got him. And then there's a hitter would look out and he would have a certain sign that he would give you based on a fastball or an off-speed pitch. But those are the things a catcher has to do. You know what I would do with a hitter if I saw that? I would stand up and I'd just kind of get close to him. I'd say, you know, your runner at second base, he seems to be doing some things out of the ordinary. I don't know if he's trying to relay signs to you, but let me tell you, this pitcher on the mound, he's very wild. 
and I'm going to set up inside, and he may lose control, and you may get hit. And he goes, really? And then all of a sudden, he's wiping his chest, telling the guy second base, don't give me anything. Because that's all, That's how you solve that. Yeah. Just tell the hitter. You're going to get drilled. You're going to get drilled. Yeah. You know, that's it. And, you know, but but it's – there's so much fun. But it, it's just, a, just such a great position. But it has changed over the years. You go back to the mid-1800s and, you know, the equipment and the way the ball is caught – um, I, I think of Kenji Jojima, who came over from Japan. He was catcher for Seattle Mariners. And Jamie Moyer was pitching. And Jamie Moyer was a finesse pitcher. He didn't overpower anybody. And I remember there was a game that Jojima would catch a pitch at the knees. And by the time the glove was finished, it was on the ground. It kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. And Jamie Moyer lost the game. And I remember talking to him the next day, and he says, man, this umpire was terrible. I said, Jamie... Go look at the video. I don't think it was the umpire. See, what happens if a catcher doesn't catch the ball properly, the visiting or the other dugout starts screaming at the umpire. And so the umpire will more or less say, okay, I'm going to call a strike. But if you keep making me look bad by taking a strike and catching the ball to where your catcher's mitts on the ground and they're seeing the end result, and they say, how can you call that a strike when it's in the dirt? But Jamie Moore came back to me later and he says, you're right. I said, I know I'm right, because I saw everything that he did. He'd take your fastball at the knees and take it out of the strike zone. And I said, just what I said, the umpires will take so much, and they'll finally say, I'm sorry, I can't call that a strike if you're making me look bad by catching it wrong. So that's the technique of keeping a ball in the strike zone. In the case of Jamie Moyer, he had to rely on the ball being on the corners. He couldn't rear back and throw 95 miles an hour, but he depended on his catcher to catch the ball properly and to me, that's the most important thing as a catcher. This is just part one of the evolution and the art of catching because we have so much more to go over, Foss, and we're going to be doing so much of this history stuff. Uh, you are the best. I enjoy catching, as you probably know, and there is so much about it, and uh, I enjoy talking about it. So I'm glad you asked about the evolution of catching. It's the art of catching, my friend. You're the quarterback of the team. So we will do this again uh, when you get back from the road trip. I look forward to it as all. You're doing a great job. Keep doing what you're doing. The great Ray Fossey, green and gold history. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.